Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hello, welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast and today, October the 12th. Every week, this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs. You might find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories this week and we will also delve into some of the off-agenda stories that we have featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of those stories. Now, last November, David MacDonald, an assistant chief officer in the prison service, made some serious allegations of malpractice about what had gone on in some of the state's prisons. These included illegal surveillance of prison officers, uh, they also included an allegation that, in some instances, prisoners were recorded in conversations with their solicitors and that that information was passed on to the Gardaí. And he also claimed that the manner in which debts in custody in some of the state's prisons were treated was, well, quite frankly, appalling in some circumstances. Now, once those allegations became public, the Minister for Justice ordered an inquiry into them uh, a report was compiled by the Inspector of Prisons and most of the allegations were actually confirmed in that report. Since he blew the whistle, David MacDonald has, he claims, been targeted for ill treatment by management in the service. I spoke to him for today's podcast and I began by asking him in what exact circumstances he became a whistleblower. Um, approximately 14 months ago, myself and two of my colleagues were pretty much targeted by the prison service. Um, myself and my senior chief officer were both transferred out of our roles in the operational support group. And like a lot of things, this grew legs. Um, we weren't happy. We weren't happy with the explanations that we were given. And um, we had been involved in very sensitive work in the operational support group for the prison service. And I felt that it was time to highlight what we were actually doing because the reasons we were given for our transfer uh, just didn't make sense. And when you say highlight what you were doing, I think you've been fairly open about the sum of what you were doing, and but, but from your point of view, you were doing under instruction, was basically illegal. Yes, it, it was. It was illegal. Um, we operated covert surveillance on a number of prison officers that we suspected of trafficking drugs. Um, we had uh, covert cameras installed in the prison. We facilitated a specialised agency to come into the prison to install these devices. Um, we looked at people's bank accounts. We befriended them unbeknownst to them uh, with aliases on Facebook and pretty much uh, looked into very much their private lives. Um, the, we, were, we did it under orders. Uh, we couldn't have done it any other way. 
there was sums of money that were paid was paid to the uh, private investigation company. Uh, they are a very specialised company, and um, these the sums of money have been uh, unearthed by the Inspector of Prisons, Patricia Bihi. Yes, and in a personal capacity, and we'll come to this in a minute, you also looked at a very sensitive area, and that was deaths in custody and how they were treated. But before we come to that, you mentioned the Operational Support Group, David. What exactly was the Operational Support Group within the Irish Prison Service? Well, prior to 2008, um, the only prison in the country that actually had what we would call a screening area uh, it would be similar to the airport-style searching of visitors coming in was Portage Prison. All other sites, there was nothing there. So contraband was being trafficked into the prison pretty much freely. And this came to a head in around in or around 2008 when a prisoner by the name of Daly, who has subsequently since been uh, assassinated, he was shot, uh, made a phone call from uh, E1 Landing in Portlaoise Prison, which is the highest security prison in the country. He, the phone call was to Joe Duffy show uh, and was aired live on air. And that caused a great deal of problems for the authorities. And during this period, we were going through the crash in Ireland. So this operations support group was set up pretty much in a, in a rush because if it didn't get off the ground in early 2008, the chances are it may never have because money was extremely tight. So this forum that we had, the operations support group, was an independent unit working within nine sites, um, the major prisons in the country. And within the operations support group, we we formed three units within that group. One was the canine unit, which would have passive dogs, drug dogs, and active dogs for searching for contraband and drugs. The second was the SSU, which stands for the Security Screening Unit, which would do the screening of visitors and staff coming, or any personnel coming into a prison. Uh, so they would use X-ray machines, uh, walk-through metal detectors. And the third unit was the Operation Support Unit, which would specialise in gathering intelligence, um, profiling prisoners, cell searches, areas like that. So, I mean, would it be fair to make a comparison that, say, for instance, in relation to your role, it would be similar to the military police in the army and maybe internal affairs in the Gardaí? Very much so. And because what you're talking about, in, in general terms, I suppose, is a very small number, presumably, of prison officers who would be bringing the likes of drugs or mobile phones into prisoners in prison. It's criminal. Therefore, did you liaise with the Gardaí to much extent? Yeah, we did. Um, and what we found very early on was that the guards became the CEOs, the operation support group, um, as a use asset to them because they have, would have ongoing cases and we were able to supply information to the guards on a regular basis. Um, certainly, uh, my senior tree bar chief, uh, he would have liaised with the Phoenix Park and the uh, um, the National Drug Unit. But when you say Tree Bar Chief, now what exactly is that? The Tree Bar Chief, um, when the Operation Support Group was initially set up, there was 10 Tree Bar Chiefs assigned to it. Like what, what is a Tree Bar Chief? Tree Bar Chief would be the highest ranking uniformed officer in the prison service. So he'd be what's called a Class 1 Chief. Um, so there would be no one in uniform higher than, than a Tree Bar Chief. Okay, so now you have the scenario whereby your job is to detect and it would particularly come from fellow prison officers, those who might be bringing contraband, particularly drugs. You liaise with the Gardaí in that regard as well. And your allegations would seem to be that in that context, you went over and above what the law allows for. Like, for example, the covert surveillance. In one instance, there was a device put in a prison officer's private car. Now, 
by um, by the nature of the way people use family vehicles and that there you would effectively have been putting under surveillance that person's family as well that's correct Mick we I haven't made any secret of the fact that what we were doing was illegal we met with the guardie in or around 2010 um, we spoke to them about our concerns about a number of prison officers now it would be a small number but one prison officer trafficking drugs into a prison would be towards the equivalent of 100 visitors getting drugs in because they were able to bring it in, in on their night guard bag and the quantities they could bring in would be considerably more because prison officers are not searched in the same way as a visitor would be searched coming in. There are certain rules and regulations that goes with the way we search a visitor and the way we search a prison officer. The guardian explained to us that um, surveillance is usually costly uh, in both man hours and monetary but that if we were to put in place the surveillance, they would basically come in at the latter end to make the arrest. But we had to gather the intelligence for them. So to that end, we um, liaised with a private investigation company. Um, we did put trackers on people's cars. We put trackers on um, prison vehicles as well. We did put in covert cameras into what we call class offices where officers would work out of if they were on a landing. And even though we might have only been targeting one individual, by the nature of it, you put a camera in or a listening device in, it's obviously going to record everything in that area for a period of time. And in one instance, we did have a, pro a tracker on a, an officer's car and that was on it for maybe eight to nine months. Okay, so and with the scenario, as you said, you've a lot of people caught up in this surveillance who wouldn't even be suspected of anything like this and you have a civil liberty at an um, issue there, not to mind people even who are suspects, that there's a question of the legality of surveillance in them. And another feature that you mentioned, David, was that you put listening devices in the visitor boxes, and this would have, even though it wasn't necessarily targeted, it would have picked up conversations between prisoners and their solicitors. Tell me about that operation. Yeah, that was actually quite simple. Um, we used recording devices, very similar to like the dictaphone type devices that were just vice activated. So we would have put them into the visiting boxes um, and the way we would have worked it was that when a visitor came in, whether it was a solicitor or an, another visitor that we wanted to hear the conversation, we would organise for the active dog to indicate on that individual. That gave us the freedom then to direct that visitor to a certain area in the visiting box. By the nature of the way prisons work, um, and this probably a lot of people really wouldn't understand this very well, um, this is not just a matter of walking down to a visiting box and slipping one of these devices into a vent because other prison officers would see what it's doing. And prison officers are very, and uh, this is part of their job, they're very observant. So if we put in a listening device, it could be there for a week, it could be there for three days, it could be there for two weeks before we could actually have the opportunity to retrieve it. Because you need the circumstances where everything is quiet, for instance, at night or whatever, in order to get in, retrieve it and take it out again. Yeah. And the way we worked this, not every officer in the OSG obviously knew what we were doing. So there was only a very small number of staff that were tasked at this level. So even though um, there's 150 officers in the OSG, you would be looking at maybe four to five officers that were working at this level. So if I was off, for example, for three days or two days, 
I wasn't able to just direct someone else to retrieve that. So that device would be recording for the period of time that I wasn't in, in work. And even when I go back to work, depending on who was on and supervising visits and what time of the day, that I might not be able to retrieve that device for maybe a week. So it was still recording. And we did listen to... And did you pass any of that onto the Gardaí? Yes, we did. We did. And it, there was, there, it's very hard not to have information of this value and not use it. Um, it's pointless. So, yes, of course, we, we, we did pass it on. And was there any question from those whom you passed it on to the Gardaí as to how exactly you obtained this information? No. No, they, they didn't. Um, we had built up over the years, we started to build up a relationship with a number of Gardaí. So we would have had Gardaí, for example, in detectives in Limerick that would have had um, specific interest in some of the prisoners that were in our care. Um, and the information that we were getting was of huge value to them because just because a prisoner is locked up, and certainly some of the, especially at the time around 2010-11, there was a lot of problems in Limerick. Uh, we had a lot of Limerick prisoners. And the information that we were getting related to incidents that were happening down in Limerick and on the street, and the information was of huge value. So once it was of value, they didn't uh, ask how we were getting it. So to that extent, uh, wittingly or otherwise, members of the Gardaí were at the very least aware of and in receipt of the information that could only have come illegally. Yeah, at the time... Uh, this might sound quite naive, um, but we actually felt that what we were doing was of huge benefit. We were preventing crime. We were uh, passing on high-value intelligence to the Gardaí. Um, and we didn't see or stop to think that what we were doing might be illegal. But yes, it, it was illegal. Yeah, and as you say, your, your aim was obviously to stop drugs coming into the prison, but it's down to a question of whether or not, in attempting to achieve that, you're involved in breaking the law. And I suppose... From your point of view as well, there was an element to it, as you say. If, as you say, the Gardaí were, were, were um, aware of this as well, well, they're the law enforcement agency, so there's a certain protection there, you would have thought. There is, but the, the Gardaí, um, we worked very much with individuals in the, within the Gardaí. So we would have built up relationships with certain senior detectives, uh, in different areas, everywhere from Kulak to Bantry. And we it's a very much a trust thing. So they trusted that we were given, the information that we were given was um, accurate and they proved to be in many, many cases. And then the payoff from that was that there was many times that we required information on drugs coming into a prison. And another role of the OSG was to uh, break up gang activity and curtail them and the Gardaí were of huge benefit and help to us. So it, there was a payoff here. Right. So, and you, you made these allegations in an affidavit that was connected to the transfer. You said that really changed things for you and your attitude to the prison service where you've been working for 30 odd years. Um, and then these, and the, the affidavit became public. There was something of Holly uh, Blue in the Dáil, the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan ordered what he described as an urgent inquiry. He ordered the Inspector of Prisons, that's sorry, that was last November. He ordered the Inspector of Prisons, Patricia Gilhini, to carry it out. She did. She finished it more or less on time, to be fair, to her under severe pressure, around the end of February, beginning of March. Then it would appear the urgency went out of it because it didn't get published until things were very quiet politically 
on the, at the following the last cabinet meeting before the summer break, and then it came out. Now, that report, to a large extent, found that your allegations with regards to the illegal surveillance were correct and that that activity was engaged in. But they, they said they did not find corroborating evidence, certainly that they, they'd regard as a sufficient standard, that management in Irish Prison Service in Longford were aware that this was going on. You dispute that. Well, Mick, bizarrely, uh, Patricia Wilhaney, uh, in her findings, and this is in printed record, um, came up and found the receipts that were paid to the private investigation company. Um, when she found those receipts, they're signed for by a senior governor of the Irish Prison Service, Governor Kavanagh, who's since retired. His signature is on them. He was the governor of the OSG. Um, it would be just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I think I think Ms. Galini found that Governor Kavanaugh was aware of it. Yeah. But the, when when you go one step up the chain to uh, HQ of the Irish Prison Service, she says that there wasn't sufficient evidence to make a determination that they were aware of it there. And I think that's pretty crucial. Whether or not those who run the prison service were aware that this was going on. We were talking around 2010, 2011, 12. We were in a period in Ireland where I could not get for one of my officers a, a 40 euro pair of work trousers. Money was absolutely tight. You couldn't buy biros. It was that tight. So to say that um, the people that paid this money and paid the, uh, wrote the checks in Longford did, weren't aware of it um, is ridiculous because the receipts actually say, the ones they actually have paid off on say covert surveillance they say listening devices they this is actually the, the receipts are itemized and miss galhini found these receipts and those receipts that she reproduced in a report um, are actually itemized receipts and the wording is covert surveillance listening devices and so forth so this is what the people in Longford were paying for um, yes they denied it they knew what they were paying for Maybe if I was in their position, I would deny it too. But I don't for a moment believe that they didn't know. Okay, but that was the finding of the um, of the report. And you obviously differ with that. And you, you, you've laid out why and very understandable on one level. But that that's as we have it. Now, a couple of things arising from that as well. First of all, one of the recommendations that came out of it, and I think the Minister of Justice on publication referred to this, that um, the Gardaí were now detailed to conduct an investigation into this activity. That was last July, and we're now six, seven months later. Um, have anybody from the Gardaí been in touch with you about this issue? No, no. Um, there was a recommendation from both Ms. Galhini and uh, the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, that the Gardaí and the Data Protection Agency would run uh, individual separate investigations into the, we call it the Galhini report. Um, since then, neither part, no, no one has been in contact with me whatsoever. Yeah, well, it would be a sticky one for the Gardaí if, and there was, having read the report, there was a reference to this, there was certainly a reference that indicated that members of the Gardaí, individuals, as you say, were aware of what was going on, and there would certainly be a reference, if that was the case, then immediately, if they were to be the agency investigating it, you would have an issue there, but so I suppose on that level... It's, I suppose it's unsurprising no one's been in touch with you, but it's also highly unusual if the Minister for Justice thinks there should be a, a, a guard investigation. It doesn't seem to have gone directly to the source of the allegations, but that's, that, that's for another day. 
there's two other elements to this, Dave. And, and the first one, um, as well as the allegations with regards to surveillance, you, in the course of your work, uh, developed an interest in how debts in custody were dealt with. And you went to some lengths to try and improve things. And you liaised with somebody who was very important in this regard, and that was the, the now deceased former inspector of prisons, Judge Michael Riley, who was very vocal about shortcomings in this area. How did you develop an interest in um, the way debts and custody were investigated? Well, it became very obvious, I mean, that every time um, a debt and custody happened, the guards would call, have to come to the prison to investigate it. Um, the way the handling of evidence was done was awful. In many cases, the guards wouldn't even take the evidence. Um, but in your opinion, was that because this person was a prisoner and therefore nobody outside their family particularly cared about it? Yeah, what happens inside the wall of a prison is kept very, very private. So there would have been many cases where uh, it wouldn't have just be a debt in custody for the serious assault, whether it be on a prisoner on another prisoner or on a prison officer, where the weapon used would be so badly handled uh, as part of the evidence that it could never be used in court. Um, the noose around uh, a prisoner's neck who might have committed suicide in the cell, if he's in a cell with two or three others, which is a four-man cell, how that noose is tied is can change it from um, suicide to a murder inquiry. These uh, clothing belonged to prisoners were sent down to the laundry and washed before the guards given to the guards. So all DNA and blood samples were taken, um, and it was totally unprofessional the way things were done. And I suppose in one case, what really um, started me on this was there was a prisoner who committed suicide in the cell. And so many officers have gone in to have a look in the cell because officers are, by their nature, nosy. And it's part of, it's actually a quality. But so many have gone into the cell. The prisoner was actually dragged by the heels, who was dead, out onto the landing. And when they were finished, they dragged them back in. I saw one of his runners coming off, and the runner was picked up and just thrown into a bin. So this sort of handling of an area was just not acceptable. Um... Judge Riley also had an interest in this area. He had major problems with the way um, evidence was contained uh, prior to the guardie taking over. And uh, we met and we found that we, I started to work with him. Um, we were singing off the same hymn sheet to a large extent. He had huge problems in this area as well. And our main task was not to investigate, not to become investigators, but to hold and contain a scene until such time as the guardie arrived to take over and preserve evidence. And that was not being done. Up to this, we didn't even have what was called evidence bags. So clothing was put into black refuse sex or whatever. Um, total contamination of it. Uh, we had, had numerous cases in the coroner's court where the Gardaí were found that they did their job very well and the prison service had fallen far short of the professional standards that was required. So in that, we trained up all our OSG staff in how to preserve an area. It was very simple. It's not, it, wasn't over, it wasn't really what you would call rocket science, but it would change um, the way a lot of things were looked at, and especially deaths in custody. And I think Ms. Delhini, the inspector's report, she was able to confirm from notes taken by Judge Riley, who, as I said, unfortunately died pretty suddenly, I think it was in 2016. She was able to confirm the meetings you had with him, and she also accepted the allegations that you made in that regard that it hadn't been handled properly. Another element to the debts in custody, Dave, and this arose particularly in the coroner's court in Cork um, earlier this year and, and another instance, and that was for your vulnerable prisoners um, 
that the records in some instances were falsified to make it look like that these prisoners were checked on. They're supposed to be checked on every 15 minutes. And in one instance, it turned out that the CCTV footage from outside the cell showed that a prisoner who was supposed to be checked every 15 minutes hadn't been checked for periods going on for one and a half and two hours. And that prisoner that night took his own life. That, that was another area that seems to require investigation and, and attention in terms of um, vulnerable prisoners. Look, we, we do have vulnerable prisoners and there will be, unfortunately, always cases where um, if someone is determined, very determined, to commit suicide, it's very difficult to prevent that. Um, where we have to look at is that as prison officers, uh, we do our job in a professional manner. Um, in, in almost every case, that person that passes away, he's got a mother, a father, wife, he's got family outside, uh, and they deserve to have answers. And when in the Irish Prison Service, we have a care of duty and a prisoner is brought into our system. He has what's called safe custody. So we must try and ensure that we give that person that's in our care the safest custody, keeping safe custody. If we're not keeping our records properly, if we're not using the systems we have like CCTV, we're failing on that. So yes, there is failures all around. Okay, and just to bring it back to yourself for a second, I know it's not a term you'd like and it's not how you feel, but I suppose in, in shorthand, you became a whistleblower when you, um, when you made these allegations and, and everything that flowed from it. And, and you, you, you've been working in the prison since. Um, do you feel that you've been treated differently by management as a result of the allegations you made? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's this, um, I mean, there's a lot of paperwork and uh, reports from the Director General of the Prison Service who say that, um, as you call it, whistleblowers will be protected. Uh, in my case, I certainly wasn't protected. Um, you were, you're totally um, isolated. Um, things that I had access to um, have been taken away from me. Um, I have an impeccable record of 30 years and all of a sudden found in the last six to eight months I've been dished out uh, codes of discipline for what I would term to be quite insignificant um, just really do my job. Yeah and there was one instance I think whereby and, and it involved another a more junior officer who had a, a, an issue over she had a natural family issue which meant she was a small bit late for work and I think you might have let her out here. Just give us in, in broad terms the details of that incident. Uh, one of the officers that works with me um, and has been very loyal to me and this is something that I've noticed that I would almost say 50% of the staff are incredibly loyal and see what I'm what I've doing and what I've done um, as being positive and then there are certain uh, people who do not uh, but it became very apparent that they were targeting officers who were in some way loyal to me. Uh, this officer in question, her mother has been diagnosed with dementia, moved in with her about eight months ago. Um, her mother left the house, uh, one of the children rang, and in total, there was 19 minutes um, that I looked after. Uh, you you allowed her to leave 19 yeah, minutes before yes, the scheduled end of her shift? Yeah. The same officer has on hundreds of occasions stayed on late if there was a problem in the prison. If we were short at someone and required someone at 7 o'clock in the morning has done this. So there was 19 minutes of a payback. Um, I stand over it. I would do it again. I have no issue with it. Uh, I would actually do it for even one of the officers who's not loyal to me. I, I don't, you know, this was a family emergency. Um, and for that, uh, both her and me were given five quotes. And I, I think that same week, according to the 
actual disciplinary issues that were laid out she might have been late by four or five minutes beyond the grace period coming in the morning this was cited in the disciplinary codes as well yeah there was there was one uh for two minutes one for four minutes and um in total then it all added up to in in three occasions there was 19 minutes and you're in a scenario then along with this junior officer uh that you were facing disciplinary action on five different codes or charges if you want to put it just in layman's terms and uh, that could have resulted in for example um, a suspension it could have resulted in a reduction of pay in the worst case scenario and I don't think anyone ever suggested it could have resulted uh, theoretically in somebody losing their jobs but the very surprising thing about that is uh, the Irish Examiner published a story about what was going on and then suddenly that morning you were communicating. That's correct, Mick. Three hours after it probably hit the newsstand, um, I got an email saying that these codes were now gone off the table for me. They haven't been taken away yet from her, the officer, but they haven't tried to pursue it with her either. Um, <clears throat> that's unheard of in the prison service. At the very least, they would carry through the codes, bring you in for investigation. You might only get a slap on the wrist, but they don't just turn around and just, they're gone. And in my case, they're gone. But I mean, what you're talking about is a scenario, or what would appear to be, certainly from your point of view, and whereas the prison service won't comment on individual cases, I think you can take it as read that they dispute it, but certainly from the outside, what it appears like is that these codes or charges of discipline made against you, the fact that it was being done, and your background as somebody who, to use that phrase, blew the whistle, uh, and then when it goes into the public domain, they're dropped. I mean... That doesn't look good. No, but <clears throat> let's be honest here. Bar you report what you reported in the examiner going back to um, last October, November of last year and things, I don't believe for a second that Minister Flanagan would have ever have stood up in the doll and um, ordered uh, Miss Galini to run an investigation. Um, there's been lots of, lots of this, lots of examples of this. Uh, it's not just um, what I faced as being a whistleblower, and I have faced, besides those codes of discipline, many other things that happened, um, which some of them I think are totally just ridiculous. And they're actually making fools of themselves to some degree, because even after my transfer, um, uh, Burns, Nolan, solicitors who I've employed to act for me went into the High Court in October of 2018, had the transfer, was quashed by Chief Justice Noonan. Uh, three days later, the prison service wrote to my solicitors and said, that's fine, We're, but when he comes back, we're going to transfer him anyway, even though a high court judge had found that it was unlawful. And since then, they've made three or four attempts to transfer me, all of which have been blocked in the high court. And do you have any idea why they want to transfer you? Because we knew too much. If they'd come to us and actually sat us down and talked to us, we may have moved um, without any problem. Um, I was very near retirement, so I would have probably retired last February. Um, the three-bar chief, the class one chief who I just spoke about, uh, he was just literally moved into a fictional post that didn't exist. Um, in our little world, the way we were treated made us look like we had done something of a criminal nature, Made uh, totally took our character. In, in, in other words, you would not be transferred within the prison service without, against your will or without notice unless... You had done something pretty bad. No, nobody is. No, no, I mean, it, it never happens. Um, I mean, in, in my case, uh, I was actually, they had actually assigned someone 
to be at my locker to supervise me getting my uniform out of my locker. That in a, in our in the prison, just it, it's the only way I could probably describe it. It would be like someone in an office where the two security guards come up. He's not allowed to touch anything, and he's walked out of the building and gone. He have everyone in the office that's looking at him are thinking this individual has done something really really bad here. And in our case, um, we had done nothing. We had actually done nothing that we weren't ordered to do. Um, we had put in massive amount of work, uh, work that we never got paid for because to even get paid for some of the work that we were doing, putting in the hours, would have actually set up a red flag. Somebody would have noticed what we were doing. So we put in our heart and soul into this. And this seemed to be a very bad way to be treated. Two, two things come out of what you seem to be saying. Then. One is that um, it would seem that you're suggesting that within the prison service, certainly in your experience and perhaps in other ways, obviously through the, the covert surveillance and that, that things are not done according to etiquette or by law, but perhaps being made up on the hoof, to put it that way. I mean, you also seem to claim there are personal agendas there, and I'm sure anybody who's in management would deny that, but that seems to be coming true. And the other thing that seems to be coming true is that one of the guiding uh, forces in prison service management is simply to avoid controversy rather than dealing with things the way they should properly be dealt with. Yeah, and that, and that actually stands out usually in the way deaths of custody or serious incidents inside the prison are managed. It was simpler to brush this under the carpet, uh, keep the statistics looking a lot, lot better, than actually deal with it. Um, there is a lot of people in the prison with, in management with quite big egos, and that's fine, and they're looking to promote their their themselves within the prison to get promotion. Is it an unprofessional body, the Irish Prison Service, in your opinion, your experience? Um, in my experience, the, we have absolutely amazing, fantastic officers. The people that work on the floor um, are the people who run the prisons, really, because they're the ones that are dealing with prisoners. And that's what our job is for prison officers. In other areas, such as Longford, they view the prison as they call, they have lots of lovely titles now, like corporate affairs and things. And they run the prison almost like a business, but it's not a business. It's not something that makes a profit. It's, 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 there, to, to, it's there for the society, uh, the safeguard society, and to safeguard the individuals that we have uh, imprisoned by the courts. Um, so why we, on one hand, we have really dedicated prison officers, we do lack a management that seems to know what is entailed in running a prison. And in a lot of cases, our managers have never worked in a prison. Which is bizarre. a lot of the management in Irish Prison Service headquarters haven't actually worked in prisons. No, they haven't. Um, they they wouldn't know um, a prison cell from the bathroom. And finally, there is one other issue, they, and it would seem that um, politically, none of this becomes an issue because, for an awful lot of people, I'd suggest the majority, if not the vast majority of people, um, they don't care because I'm in prison. No, the vast majority of people don't care. And that's understandable when you're hearing about uh, patients on trolleys and hospitals. And I mean, they're, they're, the last thing they're going to be uh, particularly worried about is what goes on behind the wall of a prison. But it's there as part of the community. Um, like where I work in Portreach Prison, we have the highest security prison in the country. And also right next door to us, the Midlands Prison, which is the largest prison in the country. 
and we have hundreds of staff working in both these prisons and we've um, well over nearly up to 11, 1200 prisoners incarcerated in those two establishments and that's actually part of the community of Port Leash. Those prison officers, their children go to schools in Port Leash and surrounding areas, uh, you know, they socialise. Um, so the general public don't really care, I, I would agree, what goes on behind the walls. David McDonald, thanks very much. Thanks, Mick. Okay, uh, that's it for today. Thanks to producer Declan Conlon and to JJ Vernon on sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you again, folks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.